Today, we are continuing our series uh, called Kingdom Reconciled. And last week, Phil Abeda, a uh, pastor who formerly at His Love Fellowship, came and preached to us about unity in the body of the church. And we're continuing that series today. But I just need to, to give a little bit of credit up front before I get going with this message that a lot of what you are hearing today was deeply influenced by two uh, other pastors. And I listened to their sermons uh, a few months ago. And as I was prepping for this message, as Larry told me I was preaching on it, I could not get their message out out of my head, and so uh, I am borrowing in the name of Jesus today, and uh, I think you'll be grateful for that. But I just want to give credit to Matt Chandler uh, for his sermon on um, ethnic harmony, and then Brian Lourdes is another pastor uh, I listened to, and he had a sermon called One New Humanity. Uh, and I would encourage you to go listen to both of them, they are phenomenal. At Waterstone, our mission is to be a people empowered by the presence of Jesus Christ to proclaim his kingdom and demonstrate his love, justice, and mercy to our neighbor. That's the mission and the, the vision that Larry has set out for us as a church last year. And uh, there was a group of people that came together under Larry's leadership and, and tried to craft a statement that captures who we are as a church, who we want to be, and where we are going as a community and as a body of Christ. And this is what Larry's vision is for our church. Now, part of Larry's vision, this demonstrate his love, justice, and mercy to our neighbor, is an initiative, a, a movement that Larry calls Kingdom reconciled, that he longs for Waterstone to be a place of kingdom reconciliation, a church and a community of believers that are committed to the welcoming and care of people of all different ethnicities and races, that we want to be a community of people who pursue racial reconciliation. Now, when that term comes up, racial reconciliation, we have to understand that all of us come at it from very, very different perspectives. We have very different views on this issue. And in fact, I know there have people uh, in our church who have left our church because we've talked about this issue. There are also people who, who send emails chastising me because it's not a deep enough focus for some of the sermons we've given. We have people who want every other sermon to be on the dismantling of racism, and we have other people in our church and congregation who think, why are we talking about race at all? Race is a, a deeply divisive issue. It's politically charged. It's socially charged. And sometimes it feels easier maybe just to duck away from the conversation and not engage with it. And as I say that today's topic is going to be on the issue of, of racial reconciliation, my guess is that whether or not you have a Black Lives Matter flag in your front yard or a thin blue line sticker on the back of your car, your both groups are tempted to disengage. And my request to you today, humbly, is not that you would agree with everything that I say. There's room for disagreement within the body. But I would humbly ask that you not disengage. I would humbly ask and, and, and even maybe plead with you that, that you would understand as I come today, I, I come as a fellow brother in Christ, someone who deeply loves the church, who, who longs to see the church flourish, who's decided to give my life to that cause. 
And so I have worn my Waterstone t-shirt today just to remind everyone that we're on the same team and that we can get along with this issue that can challenge us. See, the truth is when it comes to this issue of racial reconciliation, all of us, I think, need to be realigned with God's heart. No matter where we might fall in this conversation, all of us, including myself, have fallen short of God's heart for reconciliation. And to help us maybe get an understanding of where each of us is at in this conversation, I thought it would be helpful to have a graph that I had Lane, our designer, make for us that, that we could maybe graph where our heart is on this issue. My guess is if that we pulled everyone in this room, we would be in very different places all over this graph. And so here's the graph. Here's, here's the graph. Outrage at the top, apathy at the bottom, and then our level of engagement at the side. Now, this first quadrant down here in the bottom right, this is what we call the social media warrior. The social media warrior, anytime this issue of racial reconciliation comes up, they cannot wait to get out their phone, tweet something off, put something on their Instagram, make sure that everyone in the world knows that they are not a racist. But they only care enough to post something. They're only engaged enough to, to put it on their social media but they're not actually engaged or, or care enough to actually do the work of reconciliation. Now, this second group down here in, in disengagement and apathy is what sociologists call the shoulder shrugger. Now, if you think that sounds like a really stupid title for a group, why would sociologists come up with that? You're onto something. No sociologist was involved in the making of this graph. These are all dumb titles that I came up with, but the social shrugger, they're just the person who's indifferent. This conversation comes up like, ah. they're the person when the conversation comes up, their only contribution is, you know, why, why can't we just all get along? That's just what I want to know. And they say it like Gandhi himself said it, like it's so profound. And they just, they're indifferent. And then this next group in this, this top left quadrant, they're the one that has a decent level of, of outrage and frustration over this conversation, but they're fairly disengaged. See, they're the, the group of people, this extreme caricature of people who, who, when this conversation comes up, they say, didn't we solve racism with the civil rights movement? I mean, why does everything always have to be about race? They're the person, as they're sitting there listening to me talk today, they're thinking, okay, this is great that this guy's going to talk about it, but does he know, does he know how many black people killed other black people in Chicago this past weekend? And then the final group, high level of outrage, high level of engagement. Now you might be thinking, okay, he's gonna say that this is the group and this is the quadrant that we're all supposed to be and this is the one who's got it right. No, that's not true. I call this, this group the Crusaders. And it was hard to figure out an emoji that's appropriate to, to put for the Crusaders. Uh, but I call them the Crusaders and they have star eyes because when the Crusader looks in the mirror, the person staring back at them is the only person in the world who is capable of solving racism, right? They're the person that they've read all the books, they know all of the things to say, they've got all the terms down. And then when you engage with them, you're like, hey, I, I kind of care about this too. They're like, well, you don't care enough. You need to be posting stuff on social media. And then you post stuff on social media and they're like, that's not enough, you need to say something. And then you say something like, how dare you speak for people of color? And you can never win with the crusader because really their outrage is, is a form of, of self-righteousness. 
And so my question is, where might you be on the map? Now my guess is that, that these caricatures I've painted, these extremes, none of us are, are necessarily in those places, but where, which quadrant would you place yourself? And I do mean this, when, when we talk about this issue today, my goal is not to move you from one quadrant to the next. I think they're all deeply flawed, and I think all of them miss the heart of God for reconciliation. All of them are more influenced by culture than scripture. And the call for us as people of God is to be aligned with God's heart on this issue, not the ups and downs of cultural engagement. There's something deeper going on in the community of Christ that calls us to this issue, to engage with this issue, to care, but in the way that Christ calls his church. But I want to also acknowledge that, that there's a, another group, and, and this group might be in any one of the four quadrants, but this is the group of people who, when this topic comes up, they're simply holding their breath. It's the people in our church and in our community who are, are, are people of color, and they come into this conversation with, with a healthy skepticism because the church has said they want to do things about this in the past. The church has, has talked up that they want reconciliation to take place. And then they've fallen again and again and again. And so this community might be simply holding their breath today, hoping that, that this white boy in a Waterstone t-shirt doesn't screw it up too badly. They're just hoping and wondering if they will be accepted in our community and in our space. And so my hope today is that as a community, we could come together under the banner of Jesus Christ and see that this issue is not a political issue, it's not a social issue, it's not even necessarily a justice issue. This is a issue that is deeply important to the heart of God. And so would you please pray with me as we jump in today. Heavenly Father, wherever we might be on the silly graph, God, we know that, that this issue is not silly to you, and it is something that's, that's deeply important to your heart. We know it's something that, that so many different groups of people have gotten wrong again and again and again, and yet it is something you continually call your church to engage with. And so, Father, I pray today that, that my words would not be my words, they would be your words that the reflections of my heart would be pleasing and honoring to you. I pray that scripture would speak today through the power of your Holy Spirit to align our church and our hearts with your heart. And it's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. So our story starts today in Acts chapter 10. Larry just shared a little bit about the beginning of the church in Acts 2. And what we see is after this day of Pentecost, this moment of Pentecost, the church continues to expand and continues to draw people to the person of Jesus Christ. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to, to uh, open them to Acts chapter 10, or you can follow along on this screen. But the story begins with Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, who is getting ready for lunch. And before he's getting ready to eat lunch, he decides to take a nap. Sounds like Peter's having a great day, by the way. He's just napping, waiting for lunch to happen. And as he's napping, he has a vision from God. And it's a vision of food. 
And I don't know about you, but I wish God would give me dreams about food more often. And so Peter's having this dream, waiting for lunch. He must be really hungry. He has this vision from heaven of a sheet of food descending from heaven. Now on this sheet, it's the good stuff. It's spare ribs. It's barbecue. It's bacon. If I have a vision for bacon, you better believe that's a good dream. But for Peter, he's a little horrified because all of the things on this sheet are things that he is not supposed to eat. They're things that scripture has called unclean. And so an angel from the Lord seeing this response in Peter says, take, kill, and eat. You have got to love Peter's conviction in this moment because if someone tells me to eat bacon, I'm not going to need them to tell me to do it twice. But Peter's conviction is no, never. I will never, ever touch this food. I have never touched this food. I won't do it. I can only imagine God watching this moment play out and Jesus watching this moment play out and thinking, really? You said you'd go to the hill on Calvary and die with me, but but you didn't do that. This is the hill that you want to die on? Bacon? And yet, God doesn't say that. He says, do not call unclean what I have called clean. And as Peter wakes from this vision and is contemplating what in the world does this mean, there's a knock on the door. And there are three messengers from a man named Cornelius. And all we know about Cornelius is is several things, that he is a Roman centurion and he is from the Italian regiment. And so these three people knock on his door and ask Peter to come with them. And you have to understand the anxiety Peter must have felt in this moment. This is if the police come and stop at your door and knock on your door and say, hey, you need to come with us. We have some questions for you. And your guess is that they're probably not going to ask you what your chances are of the Broncos getting Aaron Rodgers this year, right? You know you're in trouble if the police say you need to come with them and they have questions. That's Peter's moment. But the Holy Spirit intercedes and says, Peter, go with them. I have sent them to you. And so he goes to the house of Cornelius, and this is what Peter says. While talking with them, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. And he said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. And you need to know that that word Gentile, a more accurate translation of it is with people from other nations. And Peter goes on, but God has shown me that what I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. But notice he's still a little hesitant. Can I still ask why I'm here? Still a little bit of fear, like you're still the Roman soldier. But notice what Peter's interaction with them is. It is not okay for a Jew to associate with anyone from a different nation. Now, what you need to understand is is that word nation is actually really important. That word Gentile in that passage is actually the word in the Greek ethnos. It's where we get the word ethnicity. You see, anytime the Bible uses the word nations, we translate it as nations, but the Bible is not talking about nation states like Canada or Mexico or the United States. It's talking about ethnicities. It's talking about different people groups. And so Peter comes to this group of people, this different ethnicity, he says, don't you know it is not okay for me, a Jew, to associate with people of different ethnicities? 
But notice what happens next. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation, again, the word ethnos, the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. So Peter says, I I realize what the vision is about. I thought it was about food. I thought it was about unclean food. But really what it is about is God is telling me not to call ethnicities, people who I thought were unclean, unclean. That God has made them clean. People of all different ethnicities are clean in the name of Jesus. And so he begins to preach to them this expanded view that people who are not ethnically Jewish can still come to faith in Jesus. And he's not even preaching 10 minutes before all of them receive the Holy Spirit, receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and begin prophesying in tongues. And Peter's like, what in the world is going on? I guess we should baptize them because they've received the Holy Spirit. But he is shocked and confused, and the Jews who are with him are like, what in the world is going on right now? Because you see, for for Peter and his friends who were Jewish, they were still under the idea, the assumption that Jesus was the Messiah for the Jews. And that if you wanted to follow the Jewish Messiah, you would need to become ethnically Jewish. And the Holy Spirit is blowing those expectations out of the water and they don't know what to do with it you see we we preach this story we teach this story as if it's it's the first conversion of a gentile to christianity but really this story is about peter's realignment with god's heart god revealing his heart for the nations and for the different ethnicities of the world and saying this is who my gospel is for And it takes Peter and the church a minute to catch up. John Stott, this is what he summarizes this passage in Acts 10. How would God succeed in breaking down Peter's deep-seated racial intolerance? The principal subject of this chapter is not so much the conversion of Cornelius as the conversion of Peter. The realignment of Peter to God's heart. What you have to understand is this event, this this event of Cornelius coming to faith in Jesus, these people receiving the Holy Spirit and being being baptized causes shockwaves to go throughout the early church. Peter goes back to Jerusalem and the leaders of the church, they begin to reprimand him saying, how dare you associate with people of different ethnicities? How dare you preach the gospel to them? How dare you baptize them without them becoming Jewish? And Peter says, I don't know what you want me to do. I preached the gospel. They believed. The Holy Spirit showed up. What else was I supposed to do? And so they decide, and you've got to love church politics. They decide that, okay, well, if that's what happened, then I guess we'll vote on whether or not God can actually do what he already just did. And so they think, okay, we're going to vote. We'll argue it. We'll hash it out. And you've got to imagine God watching this play. like, okay, great. I hope the votes fall in my favor. No, God is revealing his heart for the nations and for ethnicities and saying the gospel of Jesus Christ is for all people everywhere, regardless of race or ethnicity. And the question is, why was this such a big deal? Why 
do they have to debate whether or not God can do this? Why is a Gentile named Cornelius, someone like you or me, coming to faith cause so much controversy? The, the answer is actually simple. They missed the heart of God. Because you see, from the beginning of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, God has revealed his heart for the ethnicities of the world, for the nations of the world, for all people everywhere to be brought back to himself. There's a thread throughout Scripture of God's expansive view of how all ethnicities in the world are to be brought back to himself. And so this thread picks up in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. And if you remember the Tower of Babel from Sunday school, there's a, a group of people, it's actually all people in the world, there's one ethnicity, one language, and they come together to dethrone God. And they think, we'll be like God. If we can build a tower to the heavens, we can dethrone him and we can take his place. And as a consequence of that skin, God scatters their languages and sends them to all corners of the world. And the Tower of Babel is the Bible's way of explaining the, the different ethnicities, the different nations, the, the hierarchy and the ways that we divide ourselves based on race and language and tribe. What's fascinating is that story in Genesis 11, we rarely connect these two stories, but the story that follows up the story of Babel is the call of Abraham. And God comes to Abraham in Genesis 12, and he gives him a promise that he will bless him and make him a blessing for all nations. Again, the word ethnos, all ethnicities, and, and central to God's redemptive plan, the beginning of God's redemptive plan, is that he will bless a specific people to bless all people. That he will undo the separation and division that has happened in Babel. And we could make a lot of stops along this thread through the prophets or the Proverbs and the ways that, that God continually tells his people, you're missing it, you're missing it, you're missing it. My heart is that you would bless the other nations, the different ethnicities of the world. But for the sake of time, I'm gonna skip ahead to the life of Jesus because Jesus is the one who finally fulfills this promise to Abraham. And so much of Jesus' ministry is the deconstruction and the disintegration of the barriers people have placed on one another regarding race and ethnicity. And so Jesus does insane things for the day, like making Samaritans the heroes of his story. Jesus does crazy things like say centurions who aren't even Jewish have more faith than all of Israel combined. Do you think he might be trying to get a point across? But there's a, a fascinating story from the life of Jesus that we often miss, and it's in Mark 11, the temple. Jesus comes to the temple and he sees the way that the people are, are using it as a, as a market and the way that certain people of different ethnicities are being excluded and taken advantage of. And he sees the corruption going on in the temple and he makes a whip. And we love this story because we see Jesus angry, but we miss why he's angry. So Jesus goes into the temple with this whip and he overturns tables and he chases out people. But notice what he teaches when he does this. He says, and as he taught them, he said, I love the picture of Jesus, by the way, just, just destroying the temple and teaching as he goes. 
that had to be a hard sermon to listen to. And he taught them and he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, ethnos. He's quoting Jeremiah and Isaiah. He says, but you have made it a den of robbers. You see, central to Jesus' anger at the temple is the way the people of God have excluded people of different ethnicities and races, the way they have placed their comfort and their convenience over God's mission and God's heart. It's one of the most angry places we see Jesus. And this is why. And we see the story continue, this, this revelation of God's heart for the different ethnicities, even in the Great Commission. And we often miss this, but in the Great Commission, this is Jesus' call, is to go and make disciples of all nations. Again, ethnos. And then we see that play out in the story of Pentecost, which, which Larry shared earlier today. I think it's so fitting that today is actually Pentecost Sunday. That wasn't planned, but this is what happens. In Acts 2, the reversal of Babel begins to take place because you remember God scattered all of the people with different languages, sending them out. In the Pentecost, God brings all of the nations back together and the Spirit enables them to understand one another again. It's the reversal of what happened in Babel. And notice what Luke says about the crowd there. Now that we're staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Every nation under heaven hears and receives the gospel. And what you see in the book of Acts is this continual expansion, this continual growth of this movement of people. And so in Acts 10, you have the story of Cornelius, the first Gentile convert. But just a few chapters later in Acts 13, you see how deeply this truth has, has taken root in the church with the church in Antioch. This is what Luke says about the church in Antioch. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. Now usually when we come to a, a list of names in scripture, we just kind of skip over it and bypass it because we're like, I don't know who those people are. Doesn't matter to me. And yet names are important. Luke is listing the leaders of this church in Antioch and he does not just list their names, but their ethnicities. And so he says, we have Paul, Saul, who ch has changed his name to Paul, and Barnabas, who are, are ethnically Jewish, but living in Greek culture. And then there's Menean, who is part of Greek aristocracy. He came up with Herod the king, the Tetrarch. Now just, let's pause for a moment. That means he's friends with the man who killed Jesus, and they let that guy into the church. And then there's also Simon called Niger. Niger means black. And Lucius of Cyrene, which is a Mediterranean town on the north coast of Africa. You see, what Luke is saying is that under the banner of Jesus Christ, people from all nations are coming together for the church, in leadership in the church that people who would never associate with one another in any other context have come together under the banner of Jesus Christ that in the name of Jesus Christ, God is bringing together all people as one people. 
And then we see this vision come to a fulfillment in the book of Revelation where again and again John receives a vision of the church in heaven. And this is what he sees when he looks before the throne of God. After this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, again ethnos, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. They are praising Jesus as Lord and King, and there are people from every place on the face of the earth. Before the throne of God is an ocean of every ethnicity, a multi-ethnic, multilingual chorus praising the triune God. I don't know about you, but to me, heaven sounds like a white supremacist hell. And you see, we have this vision from Genesis to Revelation of the ways God's redemptive plan, central and core to his heart and his message, has been the reconciliation of the different ethnicities. Jamar Tisby summarizes this thread saying the good news of salvation in Christ was never intended simply for those who were ethnically or culturally Jewish. Rather, the promise of deliverance is for people of any race or ethnicity who would believe that Jesus is the Messiah. In this way, God forms a multiracial, multiethnic community of worshipers who will share an eternal communion with God and with each other. Now, most of us are probably far along enough in our journeys that, that we have no problem with most of what I've just said. I mean, most of us would not say that the salvation of Jesus Christ is just for Jewish people or, or just for Gentiles or that it's just for white people or that it's just for black people. But when we start talking about multiracial church, and that, that God's heart is for a community of believers that reflect all of his diversity and all of the different ethnicities now, we pause. Are we sure? That sounds messy. That sounds complicated. You see, when it comes to this vision of God's heart, for the nations, we think, of course, salvation is for vertical reconciliation. It's about all people coming to know Jesus as king. But I don't know that it has implications horizontally. I get that the gospel is for the reconciliation of people to God, but, but I don't think the gospel has anything to do with racial reconciliation. We just need to preach the gospel and that'll solve all of that. But what we see in the early church is a very, very different conviction. See, the story of Peter picks up in the book of Galatians, Paul's letter to the church in Galatia, and he, he tells of an incident that happened with Peter after this vision that he had about Cornelius. You see, 
Peter goes and he lives with the church in, in Antioch. Remember the church in Antioch, that diverse group of leaders, the people that are representing all sorts of different ethnicities. Peter is living with them, fellowshipping with them, and they are under intense persecution. But then notice what Paul says happened next. When Cephas, that's our guy Peter, came to Antioch, that diverse church, I, Paul, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, James is the brother of Jesus, there's a lot of history going on in this passage, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles, with the different ethnicities. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. I love Paul's note there. He's like, even Barnabas messed this up. If you don't know your church history, Barnabas was a person who was known as the encourager. He was basically the personality of a golden retriever. And Paul's like, even Barnabas was led astray. You led poor Barnabas to the wrong place. You see, what we see here is Peter's fickle heart. You have to love Peter. So many of us can see ourselves in Peter because Peter has all the conviction in the world but lacks courage to do so often what Jesus has called him to do. He received a vision from heaven. He saw the Holy Spirit descend and envelop a community of people who were not Jewish. And yet when there's racial tension he backs away and segregates the church again. Now, just for context, that means all of us predominantly in this room would have been excluded. And Paul is furious. And he responds strongly and he condemns Peter. But more important than Paul's strong response is the reason why he condemns Peter. Listen to what he says. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, Peter, in front of them all, you are a Jew and yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? He calls him a hypocrite. He says, how dare you think that all of us are included and yet you are excluding those who are ethnically different than you. And Paul condemns him for not living in alignment with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you see what Paul has done there? So many times we come to this conversation and, and the opposition for the church speaking about this is that we simply need to preach the gospel. That if we just preach the gospel, don't worry about all these things that, that cause division and, and separation and, and angst amongst us. If we just focus on Jesus, then all of that stuff will work itself out. And what Paul has done is tether racial reconciliation to the gospel and say that they are not elective that the reconciliation of the races is central and core to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Because he knows our tendency is to treat this like it's just a side of the gospel and not a direct implication of the gospel. A few years ago, there was a a movement in in churches in America that was called the homogenous unit principle. And the idea was basically very simple. It it said, find your demographic, cater to your demographic, and, and just try to reach one very specific subset of people. That when you try to reach too many people too broadly, if there's too many different ethnicities, if there's too many different socioeconomic standards, if there's too much diversity, then it is harder for people to receive the gospel. It is a great business model for church growth. It is not biblical. It is not the model of church and worship that we see in the first century. See, God is revealing his heart that that yes, he wants unity, but, but the power of the gospel is that there is diversity and unity can still exist. That unity does not come at the expense of diversity, but in the midst of it. That is God's heart. So the question is, where are our hearts? If that's God's heart, where are our hearts? And see, you might be in in any one of these quadrants. And maybe if, if you're the social media warrior and you care a little bit and engage a little bit, maybe God is calling you to engage more deeply with this issue at Waterstone. Maybe if you're someone who just shrugs their shoulders and is indifferent, maybe God is simply asking you to care. But I want to speak to the, to the other two groups a little more in depth. Because what I find is the two groups in this disengagement and outrage and engagement and outrage, they often tend to to be the ones that have the most to say and are the most frustrated by this conversation. And so first, for for this group of of people who, who just roll their eyes and wonder, why does the church talk about this? Why is this the issue we have to go after? Race is everywhere, it's divisive. I often see in this group the the most frustration and anger in response to this conversation. And, And I've said it before, but our emotions are a check engine light on our souls. And so I would just ask, what about this conversation causes so much anger? Why is anger the natural response to a conversation about reconciliation? The second question I would have for this group in this quadrant is is I don't understand why racism is the one sin the church seems to think that we don't struggle with. When we talk about greed, it's like, yeah. Talk about anger every day and twice on Sunday, especially when I don't like what the pastor's saying. Lust, of course. When it comes to racism, why is it the one sin that we think we might be above? I mean, think about the story we just heard of the early church. If Peter, who walked with Jesus, could not get this right, 
if James, the brother of Jesus, played a part in the dysfunction of the church, if Barnabas, the golden retriever, could not get this right, if this could happen in Antioch, how could it not happen at Waterstone? Are we at least open to that conversation? And then for the, the final group, the crusader, the person who thinks they have it all figured out, I would challenge us in this. So many times we come to this conversation and what we think is righteous anger is simply self-righteousness. And self-righteousness leads us to resent those who do not think like us. And I will tell you this, you cannot reconcile with people you resent. Resentment is poison to reconciliation. See, the great commandment is not to love issues, but to love people. And yes, God wants us to right wrongs and to correct injustice and, and to pursue reconciliation, but not at the expense of relationship. We do not discard people on the way to God's reconciliation. And so where is our heart in this? Can you say that you are aligned with God's heart on this issue? Because if not, then we all need to repent. In just a moment, Justin is gonna come out and, and sing a new song. And I would encourage you during this song, it's called There is a King. And I would encourage you to, to engage with whatever way feels fitting to you. But let this be a time of reflection. Does your heart align with the heart of King Jesus? And if not, where is God calling you to move, to be in alignment with him? You know, it's fascinating to me as, as Paul wraps up this conversation about where Peter got things wrong and, and how the church in Galatia is even struggling with the implications of this gospel. He tries to straighten their hearts out, and this is what he says. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized in Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's family and heirs according to the promise that we looked at in Genesis 12. See, when Paul starts saying that there's neither Gentile nor, nor Jew, when he says that there's neither male nor female nor slave nor free, he's not saying that these distinctions don't matter. Paul is not making the argument that there's no such thing as gender. He's not making the argument that there's no such thing as color. But what he is saying is that before the throne of Christ, it's fascinating, he referenced Christ's messiahship five times in these verses, as if to say before the throne of Christ, under the banner of his kingship, the community of believers is one in which all division, all segregation, all separation disintegrates and comes undone before the throne of Jesus Christ. 
And the question for us is, are we content to just let that be some far off future? Or is that the vision that we are willing to fight for now? Do we have the conviction and the courage to pursue Christ's vision for his church? Do we have enough strength to pursue a community where all people, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of race, and regardless of how differently they might see this issue, can we come together under the throne of Jesus Christ and say, we will look like a community that the world cannot recognize? We have that fight in us to pursue that community in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.